Over the last uh, few weeks, we've been reflecting on the journey of Jesus to the cross, the last 24 hours in his life and ministry leading up to the crucifixion. And it was three weeks ago that we commenced our reflections on the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, uh, often referred to as the Last Supper. And then the following week, two weeks ago, we looked at what happened in Gethsemane, that olive grove in the Mount of Olives, uh, where Jesus prayed that the Father's cup of wrath may be passed from him, yet not my will, but your will be done. And after Jesus finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas came along and betrayed Jesus with a kiss, that sign which directed the soldiers to Jesus. And then Peter, typical Peter, drew his sword and um, tried to prevent the soldiers from arresting his friend and Lord. And uh, Jesus rebuked him and said, those who live by the sword will also die by the sword. Peter, who was so recklessly courageous in that action, just a few hours later, was anything but courageous when he denied Jesus on three occasions as Jesus predicted that he would. Now this morning we're going to focus our thoughts on the trials of Jesus. I say trials in the plural because Jesus was tried first of all by the, Roman, by the Jewish authorities and then by the Roman authorities uh, on that night. But none of the Gospels provide us with the full story. We have to look for some facts in Mark, some in Matthew, some in Mark, some in Luke, some in John. For example, only Matthew tells us of the death of Judas. Only Luke tells us that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Only Matthew tells us that um, uh, Pilate took a bowl and washed his hands before the crowds, saying that he was innocent of this man's blood. Only John tells us that Jesus, first of all, was sent to the house of Annas, the former high priest, before he was taken to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, you've probably guessed this, that this sermon series, which is concluding on Friday night, on Good Friday, has a very different feel to many of the other series that Dan and I bring in the church. And essentially, this series is focusing on uh, the narrative it's on the story that happened on the, in those 24 hours of Jesus going to the cross, his journey to the cross. And we, as it were, are walking with him that 24 hours, seeking to gain a fresh insight as we reflect on the gospel accounts. So this morning, we're going to be doing a fair amount of reading of scriptures as well. And we're going to be looking into all four gospels. But let's start this morning by... Uh, John chapter 18, verse 12. And I'll put all the scriptures up on screen for you. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. And if you've got your Bibles open there, just go on a few verses to verse 19 of the same chapter. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. 
Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, let's move now into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the, the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat on his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. Now the detachment of soldiers that arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, first of all took him to Annas, the high priest's father-in-law. Annas was the former high priest, but he had been removed from that office some years before by the Romans. But the Jews believed that the job of the high priest was for life and that the Romans had no right whatsoever to meddle in their affairs, had no right to meddle in their religious practices. So Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, in their eyes retained a measure of authority. For him, he was still the official high priest. Following that, he was taken to the residence of the uh, high priest Caiaphas. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, we read there, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. There was no sense here of being innocent until proved guilty. And as we follow this trial through, which we will do this morning, we can see in ways that the Sanhedrin, uh, they, they, they broke their own precious law in many, many ways. The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish court in the land. It was made up of 71 men. There were experts in the law. There were religious Pharisees, and there were the aristocracy as well, the, the Sadducees and they were presided over by the high priest. 
And for any trial to take place which uh, ended in capital punishment, there had to be, of the 71, a quorate of 23 people in this body. So let's look at some of the laws that they broke in order to bring Jesus to crucifixion. First of all, no decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it was given in the hall of hewn stone in the temple precincts. Now, I think that that would probably make sense to us today because in our country there are certain places where a conviction can be secured and various courts are used for various sentences. You could well have a, a judge, a jury, uh, prosecuting solicitors and defence lawyers meeting in the judge's house, but no sentence could be action from there. And with the um, trial of Jesus, it was in the middle of the night, and it was in the house of Caiaphas. Secondly, all criminal cases must be tried during the daytime and completed during the daytime. No trial was meant to be held at night, and yet that was the case with Jesus. Thirdly, criminal cases could not be conducted during the Passover season. Fourth, only if a verdict was not guilty could the case be finished on the day that it began. If the, guilty, if, if the verdict was guilty, then it was necessary under Jewish law to allow a night to elapse before the pronouncement of the verdict and the reason for that, so that feelings of mercy might have time to arise. Five. All evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses separately examined. And their testimonies needed to agree in every detail. And that was hardly the case here with Jesus. Sixth. Before any trial commenced, all the evidence for the innocence of the accused was laid before the court before any evidence of his guilt was presented. Seventh, every, each member of the Sanhedrin must give their verdict separately, starting with the youngest and working through to the oldest. And again, this simply wasn't done. Eighth, no person could be asked to condemn himself, as was the case with Jesus when he was asked by Caiaphas the high priest, are you the Messiah? Ninth, and this is a very important part, the Sanhedrin charged Jesus with blasphemy. And blasphemy, it's obvious, it's a religious charge. But before Pilate, that charge wasn't even mentioned. Now the Jews, they wanted the death sentence for Jesus. Um, but since the, the Romans came in and they were their overlords, they didn't have the ability and the power to... Um, enact the death sentence. So they needed to go to Pilate, the Roman governor. And they knew that this charge of blasphemy wouldn't carry any weight before him. And um, he wasn't interested in their petty religious rules. So what these Jewish leaders did, they changed it from blasphemy into a political charge. And essentially they fabricated three charges against Jesus. They said that Jesus had encouraged people not to pay taxes to Rome. Secondly, that he claimed to be a king, king of the Jews. And thirdly, that he was causing riots all over the countryside. Now Pilate might not have been interested at all in this charge of the Jews of blasphemy, but he was certainly concerned over these charges of tax evasion and treason and terrorism. 
And tenthly, all witnesses needed to be interviewed first before the accused was interrogated. And what happened was that the Sanhedrin, this high council, had made up their minds what they believed about Jesus, that he was deserving death, and then they looked for some witnesses to lie on their behalf. And we are told that they testified falsely. Also, it's quite interesting to note that in the time of Jesus, if a witness was found to be deliberately lying in legal proceedings, the penalty of the accused um, was charged and applied to them. So in this case, for example, uh, in, a, in a capital offence, if the witnesses were found out to be lying, then they would be executed themselves. Now, you might ask, well, why weren't the witnesses executed for their lies here? And the very simple answer to that is that they were put up to it by the judges themselves. So what can we learn from this? I think that we can see the danger of a closed mind. You see, these people had made up their minds long before they'd heard the evidence. And when Caiaphas asked Jesus if he was the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus answered in the affirmative and Caiaphas immediately tore his clothes and accused Jesus of blasphemy. It had never entered his head that Jesus could be telling the truth. Caiaphas and the others were not interested in the truth at all. They were only interested in enforcing their own prejudices, closed minds. I don't know about you, over the years I've met many people with closed minds. There are many people who have sorted it all out what they believe about God, what they believe about the church, what they believe about Christianity. And in some senses, they are expert witnesses. Yet they have never, ever taken the opportunity to look into the claims of Christianity or to study the life of Jesus. Where do you find these expert witnesses? You find them everywhere. You find them in a local pub and in your office and on the factory floor. You find them maybe as even members of your own family. And all they do is air their own prejudices, but they wouldn't dream ever of coming to an Alpha course because they know it all already. As I've said before, prejudice is a great time saver. It enables you to form opinions without looking at the facts. And these religious people were certainly prejudiced, but they didn't have the authority to instigate the death penalty. That was the responsibility of the Romans and more specifically the Roman governor, Pilate. He is the only one who could pass a death sentence on him. So what about the Roman trials that Jesus went through? Let's have a look at some more scriptures here. In Matthew 27, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? 
for he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Then what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took the water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff at his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. John's Gospel highlights a certain irony in this story. In John 18, verse 28, Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. That is an utterly, utterly amazing verse. By this time, the religious leaders had lost all sense of proportion. They were so careful not to enter into the palace of Pilate, a Roman governor, a Gentile, because going into the house of a Gentile would make them ceremonially unclean and prevented from enjoying the Jewish Passover. Having said that, they were still prepared to crucify the Son of God. They just couldn't see it. On the one hand, they were so careful to keep their petty religious rules, and yet at the same time, they were not able to see that they were hounding Jesus, God's Son, to the cross. Do you remember the time when Jesus accused the religious leaders of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel? Well, that's exactly what they were doing here. Exactly what they were doing. Straining out a gnat but swallowing the camel. But before we get too critical of them, I think that first of all we need to examine ourselves. The church and Christians down through the ages has been often accused of majoring on minors, of nitpicking over things that don't really matter that much in the light of eternity, whilst at the same time ignoring the things that matter. 
Remember the time that Jesus spoke of the religious leaders of dotting their I's and crossing the T's uh, of the law, but in, ignoring the more important and weightier matters of the law, such as mercy and justice and faithfulness. And over the years, sadly, I have known churches and Christians who have been more concerned about the format of their church service than they are about helping the poor and being merciful to the needy. More concerned about worship songs than living the life of worship. More concerned about coffee rotors than prayer. More concerned about church buildings than having a surrendered heart. So before we accuse the religious leaders of straining out the gnat and swallowing a camel, I think it's really necessary this morning for all of us to check our own hearts. Are we doing the same thing in our lives? Are we people who major on minors? Are we people who nitpick over things in the eternal view don't really matter that much? And yet ignoring the more important matters such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now the Jews wanted Pilate just to rubber stamp their decision to execute Jesus. And what follows is an absolutely fascinating discussion, conversation between Jesus <coughs> and Pilate. Firstly, Pilate wanted to know uh, if Jesus was the king of the Jews. And Jesus explained to him that his kingdom was not an earthly kingdom, not a military kingdom, but it was a spiritual kingdom. In John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. Now, the kingdoms of the world in which we live have geographical parameters. The United Kingdom can be seen on a map. It's a geographical domain. But the kingdom of God can't be observed on a map. The kingdom of God is everywhere where God is king. Every time a person says, I believe and entrust myself to Christ, the kingdom of God comes a bit more. When we pray that prayer, thy kingdom come, we are praying essentially three things. We are praying for the salvation of people everywhere. When we pray thy kingdom come, it's an all-inclusive missionary prayer. Secondly, we are praying that the Lord might actually be Lord of our lives. That God's will will be our will. That God's concerns will be our concerns. And also we are praying for the, the second coming of Jesus. For when he comes back, his will will be done on earth as it is now done in heaven. And Pilate heard what Jesus had to say and then went out to the Jews and said, I, said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But when we do a comparison with the four Gospels, we can see that on seven separate occasions, Pilate pronounces Jesus without guilt. Seven occasions, Jesus is pronounced without guilt. The gospel writers portray Pilate as an ill-at-ease, indecisive man who was probably doing his best to somehow release Jesus. But the problem is, and this is key to our understanding, Pilate was only prepared to release Jesus if it could be done at no cost to himself. That's absolutely key. I think there's a, a sermon or two in, in, in that phrase. He was only prepared to back Jesus to release him if it was at no cost to himself. Initially, when, the, when Jesus was brought before him, 
by the Jewish authorities. The first thing that Pilate did was attempt to pass the buck. And he said to the, the Jews, try him yourself. And then Luke tells us that Pilate sent him to Herod for trial, hoping again that Herod was going to do the dirty work for Pilate. Didn't happen. Herod sent him back to Pilate. Pilate was a weak man. He was an unprincipled man. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but yet didn't have the backbone to stand up to the Jewish leaders. There was another attempt as well of passing the buck to evade making a decision about Jesus. And that was when Pilate reminded the crowds that it was the custom to release one prisoner at the time of Passover and asked whether they wanted Jesus released, hoped that the crowds would select Jesus, the Messiah, and therefore remove his responsibility in this. And Pilate gave the crowd a choice. Jesus Barabbas, a freedom fight fighter, a murderer, or Jesus, a man of love and gentleness. You see, the crowd, it was only days before this, on Palm Sunday, shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But now, just a few days on, they want nothing at all to do with him. And they shouted for Barabbas' life to be spared. After all, Barabbas was to them a bit of a local hero, a freedom fighter. Barabbas or Jesus. And in some senses, that's quite a vivid picture, isn't it? It's a vivid picture of what the gospel is. Two men side by side, Jesus the Messiah, Barabbas. Jesus, the most lovely, compassionate, merciful person to have ever walked this earth. And a man named Barabbas who deserved death. And yet Barabbas' life was spared because Jesus died. You could even say that Jesus took Barabbas' place. And in a similar way, Jesus has stood for us as our substitute. We are Barabbas. We are sinners who deserve to be punished for our sin. But God has taken the punishment himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Pilate wasn't finished yet. There was one last desperate attempt to pronounce Jesus innocent. And he did a terrible thing. We read about this in John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Pilate hoped that the flogging that Jesus received would satisfy the Jews and would enable him to release Jesus. And this was the most horrendous of torture. The whipping was on a, an instrument called a flagellum with nine leather straps. And on the end of the straps were embedded stone and metal and bone. And they would have ripped the skin and flesh of Jesus' back, leaving him bloody and torn. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and soldiers mocked and taunted him. During this kind of punishment, few people ever Few people lived, they died through the sheer terror of what happens 
and, and, and the whip would have just torn the back of Jesus into strips. And as they were doing it, I'm sure they didn't know that they were actually fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. For in Isaiah 53 verse 5, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through to 19, we are told there that when sin entered into the world, thorns and thistles came. And I find it incredibly ironic now that now the creator of the world is wearing a crown of thorns as he bore the sins of the world on that cross. And then Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowd, again saying that he has no basis or a charge against him. And Pilate says, here is the man. In other words, what he was saying is, look at this poor, bruised, bleeding creature. How can such a person as this be king? Have pity on him. Don't bring about his unnecessary death. And the crowd were having none of it. Crucify, crucify, they shouted. And Pilate was rattled by this. Once again, he couldn't find a charge against him. He must have been asking himself, who is this man? Who were those stories about his healing abilities and his ability to raise the dead true? And he turns to Jesus and he says, where do you come from? And he wasn't asking where Jesus was born, but asking essentially, what kind of person are you? But Jesus remained silent. And then Pilate tries to impress Jesus with his power. And he tells Jesus that he has the power to release him or crucify him. And then in quiet dignity, Jesus replies, informing Pilate that he has only the power that he has because God has given him that power. What an answer. What an answer. And the picture that we get here of Pilate, he's harassed, he's dithering, not knowing what to do. And the picture that we have of Jesus is in stately and majestic control of that situation. Once again, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews applied more pressure and blackmail. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar, they said. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar Pilate's job was in jeopardy, his career was at stake. Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, could have taken his life away like that and all the power and prestige that he, Pilate had. So Pilate needed to be very careful not to upset Caesar, but he gave one last appeal, shall I crucify your king? And then replied with the most astounding thing. The Jews said the most astounding thing that they could ever have said. We have no king but Caesar. Now that statement of the chief priests must have taken Pilate's breath away. He must have looked at them in just bewilderment and bemusement. The Jews hated Caesar. They despised Roman rule. They wanted to be free again. But they were prepared to jettison, to abandon every principle that they held dear in order to eliminate Jesus. <coughs> Pilate chose compromise. 
He ended up a murderer of an innocent man. His name has gone down in history in the most ancient of creeds, the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried, and ascended to the dead. You see, Pilate chose compromise. The crowd chose Barabbas and ended up crucifying the Son of God. Jesus chose the cross and ended up the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus died, not because of Judas's betrayal, not because of the Jews' envy, not even because of Pilate's cowardice, but he died because of the Father's love for us. Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice the Son of God given for me. My debt he pays, and my death he dies, that I might live. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Guys, if you want to come back, thank you. As we think of the events of these trials, what we've heard today as we've just, as a group of Christian people, we've just walked through the stories that perhaps that we know very, very well. What do these say to us? How do we respond? It may be that as I pray, the prayer that I pray this morning could be your words too. Dear Lord, we pray that you might give us insight into all that you went through for us. The treachery of a friend, the betrayal and disloyalty and unfaithfulness of other friends, the hostility of religious people, people who were steeped in the scriptures, trained in theology, who yet missed the truth stood right in front of their own eyes, the one who is the truth, the way and the life, right before them. And yet, Lord, before we condemn the actions of those folk, I pray that you would help us to see those times when we have failed to see you in the eyes of the poor and the marginalized, and when we have failed to hear you as Spirit speaking to us, through the pages of Scripture. And those times, Lord, when we have been deaf and blind and we have been, we've just had closed minds to the things that you have wanted us to know. Lord, before we judge Pilate too harshly for his lack of courage and for his compromise, I pray that we will look deeply into our own hearts and seek your grace for those times in our lives when we too have lacked courage and have chosen compromise instead of conviction. Lord, we pray that you'll give us eyes to see what our sin cost you. Give us sensitive hearts, Lord, to respond to you and give us willing spirits that we should be a people of justice, a people of mercy, a people of great grace and compassion in this world. I pray, Lord, that we will be your light, we will reflect your light in the darkness of our times. 
but we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.